Genesis chapter 24 and verse number 27 is where we'll read. And then I'm going to go back. I'm going to tell the story. I like doing, I like preaching that way. If you've been at Liberty Lake Baptist Church for any length of time, you know I like to tell the story and then, and then make some points afterwards. We uh, read in the Word of God in Genesis chapter 24 and uh, verse number 27. We're jumping right into the, really the end of, of the story. And we're going to look at this verse. It's where we pulled our text from this morning. It's where we pulled the theme from. It's a theme that I believe the Lord gave to me as we go into this new year. Genesis 24, 27 says, And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help me to effectively communicate those things which you laid on my heart so many months ago. Lord, for whatever reason you caused this to jump out to me, I can still remember, Lord, as we sat and communed together that morning. I pray, Lord, give me a direction, give me a theme that you did. You're faithful to answer that prayer, and I know that you'll be faithful to answer all others. We pray according to thy will. We'll love you and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 24, we find the account of an elderly Abraham commissioning his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac. Now, Abraham doesn't want a bride for his son from among those that were given over to idolatry and paganism. And so, Abraham requires that unnamed servant. Now, let me stop right there and say that most people agree, and I've, I've got no reason to debate it, but most people agree that this was, would have been a, a servant by the name of Eliezer. And so Abraham requires this unnamed servant, though, and that's, that's what we're going to go with because he's not named, um, to take an oath that he will not bring a, a wife to his son, from among the Canaanites, but from Abraham's own country and Abraham's own brethren. That's just the way it was back then. And so that is the account we find in this long chapter of the Word of God. And it is a long chapter. And this chapter is ripe with types of Christ and the church. Now, uh, finding types in the Bible is a principle of, of uh, biblical interpretation. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the principles of biblical interpretation. And it's certainly fine to use. I don't think there's anything wrong with finding types in the Word of God. Uh, the problem can be, and I'm just saying, just, to, just so you know, for your own personal study, as we talk about these types, and we're gonna, not going to really get into any of that this morning, but uh, through the weeks and months to come, we'll probably talk about some of these types. But I just want to, this is the small print, right? I want to caution you about that. Uh, there are several different methods for biblical interpretation. Uh, we always, at the Baptist church, we always rest on a literal interpretation, a literal grammatical, historical interpretation of God's word, and that's a good thing to do. But once in a while you can introduce some other things, because there's poetic books and there's things like that, and you can, you can find types in the Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but let me caution you. What happens often is because it is so interesting to find types in the Bible that, that somewhere along the line we get too far over the center line there and we begin to find types in everything. And uh, there are some, uh, some folks that have 
gone over into that error. And that's what it is. It's error. That you begin to find a type in everything. You almost become maniacal. Like a, almost in a manic type of state where you're seeing a type in everything. I had a, a friend who dealt with uh, uh, some things in, in his mind, you know, mind issues. And um, he would do that every now and then. He would, uh, you know, I remember one time he was seeing the Trinity in everything, you know. He was eating beans, and there was three of the same kind of bean. I mean, literally, I'm not trying to make fun, but that's, that's what I'm talking about. We can, we can get overboard on that stuff, you know. It's like the preaching of prophecy. You know, there's men that have built their entire... I'm not, this is not intended to be critical, but there's men that have built entire ministries on, on prophecy. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. If there's one request that I get for preaching, why don't we preach on prophecy, prophecy, prophecy? So everybody's so interested in prophecy, in the end times in particular. I'll tell you why I don't, because there's some... The Lord's not led me, number one. Number two, I'm not going to be here. Right? Why are we so interested in looking for the end times when we're instructed in the Word of God to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ? I'm, I'm very, I think that we should preach the whole counsel of God. You'll hear me from time to time uh, preach some prophetic thing. But when we, when we focus on one thing and hop up and down on that thing all the time, it, it creates an error. And it creates a, a, a overcompensation, if you will, you know. And so, number one, I don't do it much because the Lord's never led me to that. Number two, there's plenty, if you're interested in that, there's, you know, a legion of books written about it. But I'd caution you the same way. Don't get so focused on, on that stuff. If you're going to be here, you might want to read up on it, right? But if you're going to be raptured out with the church, don't worry about it. Because everything in Revelation, and I hope you understand the spirit in which I communicate this, everything in Revelation is not about the church anymore. The church age is done, and, and the, the, all of God's attention is going to go back on Israel. All of that stuff that you find in Revelation is in, intended to bring, the, to bring Israel to the point that, that they acknowledge Christ is Messiah. And so, you know... I don't mean to sound frustrated, but I, get, I do get frustrated. That's not a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. I do get frustrated sometimes because God's people are so interested. They hop up and down on that thing. And you know what it does? Here's the problem. Here's what it does. It takes our attention off where it needs to be. And we live in, the, as some people call it, the church age. What is the church age? The church age is the acts of the church that we're to be doing now. It's the thing that we've covenanted together to do, and that is to carry out the Great Commission. That's where the focus needs to be. That we might lead others to Christ so that when Revelation does get here, when we finally cross that bridge and come through the vestibule into the end of the church age, into the age of apostasy, they won't be here either. They won't have to worry about all that stuff. You know? What did Jesus say? You shall hear wars and rumors of wars. This isn't even in my notes. This is all free. You shall hear about wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and all these things going on. But Jesus, here's what Jesus had to say about that, about the end times. The end is not yet. And that is the admonition that we operate on now. The end's not yet. We're not to be looking for those things. You will not be looking. Sure, we know the shadows 
are being cast over us. And we understand that the, the Lord's coming is near, but we're not looking for the end. We're looking for, for Him. Right, amen. Aren't you looking for Him? Well, you look to the end, you get worried. You get fearful, but you look for Jesus. And boy, that all changes the perspective altogether, doesn't it? So uh, we uh, go to Genesis 24. There's full of just rich with types of Christ in the churches. It's just one stitch that we find in a scarlet thread of redemption which is woven throughout the Word of God from Genesis through Revelation. The account in Genesis 24 is easy to follow as it is written in the Word of God. So let's just tell the story here over the next few moments then we'll make some conclusions at the end. In Genesis chapter 24 and verses 1 through 4, we've already discussed uh, what, what's taking place here. Abraham's an old man, and he has commissioned his servant and required him to take an oath that he would go to Haran uh, to find a wife for Isaac. In verse number 5, the servant says, well, suppose I can't find a girl that will come back with me. And I'm, this, that's not King James, okay? That's my interpretation. That's the Cliff's Notes version. He says, suppose I can't find a girl uh, that will come back with me. Do you want me to come and get Isaac and take him to, to that other land? And, and in verses 6 through 8, look at what uh, uh, it says in, in verses 6 through 8, Abraham's answer uh, to, the, to the servant. And Abraham said unto him, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. So Abraham makes it clear that under no circumstances was Isaac to leave that land. Abraham was a man of faith, and he assured the servant of God that God would leave, lead him, okay? Verse number nine, the servant takes the oath. It's kind of a strange way to do it. Put your hand under my thigh. Uh, just the way they did it then, I don't understand all that. Maybe the Lord will explain it to me when we get to heaven. Verses 10 and 11, uh, the servant departs and arrives in Mesopotamia. And the servant took 10 camels of the camels of his master and departed uh, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia under the city of Nahor. Verse number 11, and he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time uh, of the evening, uh, even the time that the woman, women go out to draw water. I, you know, I guess we need to put nine more camels on there because he had ten camels. So you think you maybe we'll do something. I, we'll check it out. Maybe we'll just leave it as it is. The other nine are behind them, okay? So they're, they're back there. We'll draw a mural on the wall or something like that. You get the point. He goes to Mesopotamia. Uh, in verses 12 to 14, we, we find the servant declaring his dependence upon God. He prays for the Lord to lead him in making the right decision. And he said, O Lord, uh, God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of men of the city come out to draw water. Let it come to pass that the damsel to whom thou... Uh, 
whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I'll give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed a kindness unto my master. And so he makes this prayer to the Lord. He says, Lord, you show me the right one. It's the one that uh, when I uh, let down her pitcher, that I ask her for a drink and she'll water the camels. Let that be the same one. Uh, in verses uh, 15 through 26, the Lord answers the servant's prayer and he confirms the choice. Look at verse 15. And it came to pass before he had done speaking that behold, Rebekah came out who was born of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder, and the damsel was very fair to look upon. Now that's a plus, right? A virgin, neither had any man. Look, if you got sent on an errand to go find a, 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 a daughter-in-law for your son, you want to find the best-looking one, wouldn't you? Wouldn't want to bring back some, I don't know. Uh, and went down, let's get back to the Bible. Uh, to the well and filled her pitcher and came up and the servant ran to meet her and said can I just throw this in uh, we were duck hunting uh, this past fall in North Dakota and before I left my wife made two pans of enchiladas and uh, so uh, there's other guys that we meet there some friends of ours in North Dakota and we will we'll hunt and then we'll just warm things up and uh, you know so we don't have to cook while we're there we just got to warm stuff up so we had the enchiladas and they were a big hit my wife makes the best enchiladas I've ever had, uh, and that's no small feat. I've eaten a lot of enchiladas. And uh, so anyway, uh, there's a father and a son there. The son's name is Levi, and the father said to Levi, he said, Levi, what do you think about those enchiladas? He said, well, now I know why he married, married who he married. And I told Levi, I said, well, her enchiladas weren't the first thing that I saw, you know. She, she was good looking. That's the first thing I noticed. But hey, I don't, you know, I know looks aren't everything, but she had a, just happened to have a great personality on top of that. She laughs at my jokes, and what, what more could you want, right? So anyway, uh, we're not talking about enchiladas here, but but he sees this this woman, Rebecca, and the servant ran to meet her, verse seventeen, and said, "Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher." Now, now he's he's saying, "Is this one?" And she said, "Drink, my lord." And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had done giving him drink, she said, I'll draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. Just, it's just happening, just like the servant wanted it to. Just like he prayed. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran again to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man wondering at her, I mean, you ever have God answer a prayer so clearly like that? And you're just, it's almost like you've dream, you're dreaming, right? And he's wondering and held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. It came to pass as the camels had done drinking. The man took a golden earring of the half shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands, a ten shekels weight of gold. And now he has to ask this, remember? Abraham made him swear, don't you bring, don't you bring me one of them pagan girls. You bring somebody from, from my country. Look what he says. He said, whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bore unto Nahor. She said moreover unto him, we have both strong provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head. He, he knew. 
She was from Abraham's country and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I, being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. What a great story. And it's, you, know, you know, it's not a story. It's not a fairy tale. This is, a, this is something that really happened. It's an account of what, what took place. What a great thing. So we see all of this come together. And when considering what Abraham's servant said about being in the way and the Lord leading him, it's, it's good, I think, to look at what he didn't say. Before we do, Let's pray and then we'll continue on with the remainder of this message this morning. Father, we are grateful again that you've brought us to this point. Lord, we thank you that you're a God that hears and answers prayer. Now, Father, we come to you once again. We're asking you, Lord, to bring us to the same conclusion. Lord, bring, bring us together, unify us in this thought. Over the next few moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when considering what Abraham's servant said, when he said, I being of the way, the Lord led me, I think it's good to consider just for a minute, think about what he didn't say. He didn't say this. He didn't say, I waited to start my journey until I had clear direction from God. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I wanted to be careful about which way I went, so I waited until I knew for sure where God wanted me to go. That's not what he said. But what he did say was this. He said, I being in the way, the Lord led me. And I think what the the servant was communicating was that the Lord had led him while he was in his journey. You see, the servant had to step out by faith, believing that God would guide him. He did not wait for confirmation on when or where he should take the first steps of his journey. He just stepped out and trusted that God would lead him. And so my question for, uh, for us this morning is, how can we, like Abraham's servant, have such confidence and joy in the Lord's leading to, to be able to, to be in the way as he described he was in the way? Now again, there's no possible way for me to fully communicate everything that, that we're going to find in this portion of Scripture. But we'll do our best to get started on it anyway this morning, all right? Being in the way. Well, number one, to be in the way, one must know the way. Now, that might sound like a contradiction to to what we have said just a few moments ago, what the servant didn't say, I waited to start my journey until I had a clear direction from God, or I waited to be careful about which way I went, so I waited until I knew for sure where God wanted me to go. That sounds contradictory, but it's not. Because the first way... To be in the way is to know the way. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said this. He said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, I think we would all agree that somebody who is lost is not in the way. They're not going the right way. If they were going the right way, they wouldn't be lost, right? One of the most difficult admissions, especially for men, for a person to make is that they're lost. Can I get an amen from the ladies if you've ever driven anywhere with your husband? Why don't you just stop and ask for directions? I'm not lost. I have joked before that I've never been lost in the woods. 
There have been a couple of times I didn't know where I was, but I've never been lost. Right? It's a hard thing to admit that, that you're lost. And especially when it comes to spiritual things. The most difficult admission for a person to make is that they're lost. A person has to believe that they're lost before they can find the way. Did you know that? You've got to, you've got to admit it. You have to admit, I am lost. And if you'll admit that you're lost, you're, you're going in the right direction then, right? Because now that you admit that you're lost, you can find the way. So the first thing that we're talking about, in, about being in the way, one must know the way, must, one must admit that they're lost. Uh, think about Mark chapter 2, it's recorded there, in Mark chapter 2 and verses 15 through 17, the Word of God says, It came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. There was, well, we're talking about that's who followed Christ, the publicans and the sinners, the, the most despised working group in all of that area of the world. Uh, they were, uh, to, the, to the Jews, they were sellouts, they were traitors, they were Benedict Arnolds, they were Jewish people working for the Roman government and the sinners. They just lumped them together, publicans and sinners. And they followed Christ, many of them. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciple, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto him, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying, if you're not a sinner, if you're not lost, I didn't come for you. Right? They that are whole need not the physician. Well, we know that the Pharisees were just as lost as the publicans and sinners. But, but what's the difference? They wouldn't admit it. They wouldn't admit that they were lost. Christ is able to save those that believe they are lost. Can you believe that I would, I, there's been times in 28 years of ministry when I have had people tell me to my face, and they didn't laugh. They said, I'm not a sinner. They've told me that. I've had some further express that and, and saying, uh, you know, you shouldn't preach that way to, to, the, to the church. We're not wicked sinners like everybody else. And I'm thinking, I must be in the wrong place. I'm not preaching in the right place if there's not wicked sinners. And the fact is, we are wicked sinners. Some of us are wicked sinners saved by the grace of God. You know? If, if there's any good in any of us, it's, it's Christ. You see, Christ is the righteousness we're missing from birth. Because we're sinners by nature and by practice. We inherited a, a spiritual birth defect from our first per parents, Adam and Eve. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And we're sinners by nature, but the truth is, if we would admit this fact, we're sinners by practice as well. See, that's, that's the part that gets overlooked sometimes. We, we've got to admit, I'm lost. 
Some of you may, may remember this several years ago. I know some of you remember this. Uh, somebody came on, it was an April Fool's Day, if I remember correctly. It was April 1st, and I was preaching on the center, the uh, fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And uh, that's a good one for April Fool's Day, right? Uh, the, the fool has said there, there is no God. And the, this person who was invited by another person in our church, they visited the church on that Sunday, and they, they were an avowed atheist. They made no bones about saying, I do not believe there is a God. I, they were an avowed atheist. I came because so-and-so invited me. By the end of that service, I, des I described the lost that day. And by the end of the service, that avowed atheist walked the aisle. And I said, why have you come this morning? And she cried out loud enough for many in the auditorium to hear, I'm lost. I'm lost. She bowed her head, placed her faith and trust in Christ there that morning. What was holding her back? The admission that she was lost. She, she couldn't even begin to know the way because she, she wouldn't admit that she was lost. Christ is able to save those that believe they're lost. Well, what are the lost saved from? According to the word of God, the lost are perishing. Did you know that? They're, they're under the wrath of God. Condemned already. It's not a matter of someday standing before God and hoping that the good outweighs the bad. John 3.18 says they're condemned already because they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're condemned already. The, the decision has already been made. They're blinded by the devil on the broad road to destruction and separation from God for eternity. They're empty, isolated, fearful of death, and they have no lasting peace within them. That's the lost. You think about a lost person. They've got no peace. They feel isolated. They're fearful of, of the things that are around them. And so much of this describes, and we can understand that, if we've ever been in a situation where we felt lost. The lost live a life of wandering without direction. They hopelessly wander around in their lost condition. Hey, I know this is real deep theologically, but here's the point. They're lost. So to be in the way, one must know the way. And the way is not a person, I'm sorry, the way is not a place or a thing. The way is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's no other way. You know, they, you might say, well, that seems pretty exclusive. Well, Christ was pretty exclusive. What he's recording in John, recorded in John 14, 6 is saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if you say, well, that's pretty exclusive. Yeah, I agree. Because it's the way. And there's only one way. See, the world would have us to believe that we're all on different roads going to the same place. Well, Jesus talked about the different roads that we're on. He said there's one road that there's a lot of people on. And it's a road that leads to destruction. Many there be that go in there. But he said, narrow is the way and straight is the way, gate that leads to salvation. And straight and narrow doesn't mean it's difficult. Straight and narrow means it's just one way. It is, it is narrow. It is exclusive. And it goes by the way of the cross and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the way. 
And so in order to be in the way that we're talking about, the context of what we're talking about, for, for God to guide us, we've got to be in the way. So we see these things. I think about that song uh, that we sang about just a little while ago, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Was it Isaac Newton? Is it, am I getting the name right? That wrote Amazing Grace, the words to Amazing Grace. Isaac Newton? No. John. What's the last name? Claudia, help me out. John? Newton? Is it John? John. I, who's Isaac Newton? He's a, he's a, he's, yeah, he's the guy that, yeah, okay. He needs Jesus too. Right? John Newton. I don't know if you've ever read the story behind this, behind the song Amazing Grace. It's an amazing thing. He was a slave trader, a vile man. They're, they're men threw him out of his own ship, out of his own slave ship and tried to harpoon him. That's how wicked and evil that man was. They hated him. He was a vile wretch. And, but, but here's the fact. John Newton could not find the way until he could admit that he was lost and he was a wretch. You know? And then he was miraculously and gloriously saved and lived out his life, wrote so many good hymns with so much strong doctrine. But to, in order to be in the way, one must know the way, and the way is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to have time get into the second point, and sometimes that's better. So let me, let me just, we'll leave it where it is. In order to be in the way, as we, as we kind of put this theme in front of us for 2022, you must know the way. Not about the way. You need to know the way. The way is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and, and we're going to draw this thing to a close this morning. John chapter 1. As you go to John chapter 1, again talking about the exclusive name of Christ, it's the same message that the, uh, Jesus preached of himself. He was the way. It was the same message that the early church preached. For example, in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, we learn from their preaching that they said, this is what they said, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. And it's the same message we preach today. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, one might ask, admitting that they're lost, they would, they would admit, I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I recognize that I have transgressed the boundaries that God has commanded me to stay in. I've broken at least some of the commandments, and I understand that you know, I'm a sinner. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's how it's defined in the Bible. It's getting out of the boundaries that God has set for us. We recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that we've, you know, for example, we've, we've told lies. We've done evil things. We've done wicked things. 
Every one of us, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We come to that admission. We come to that point of, of recognizing, you know what, I am lost. We recognize that there is a penalty to be paid for sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. That's not what the preacher says. That's what God's Word says. There's a wage. There's a consequence for sin, and that consequence is death. The word death means separation. Death passed upon all men. You know, uh, Adam and Eve were created perfectly innocent in a perfect environment. They were created to live for eternity. But they didn't because they sinned against God. And death passed upon all men. Things, things took on a new nature and, and a new direction in this wonderful world that God created. Suddenly there's bloodshed and death, weeds, thistles, pain and childbirth, you know, things like that. So death passed upon all men. Now Adam and Eve didn't die that day physically. They didn't die that day even, even in their soul, their mind, their emotion, their will. But something died that day that they sinned against God. And it was their ability to walk and to fellowship with God. Because God said it, the day that you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. And something died that day. God keeps his word. And their ability to have a relationship with God died. And the only thing that could restore that relationship was the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he hadn't come yet. So God shed the blood of innocent animals as a covering, a picture of what was to come. And so from Adam and Eve and, and on up to the time of Christ, they look forward to what we look back to now. That's the only difference. See, we have the advantage that we have it recorded in God's Word. Christ has come. We just came through a whole series of messages that talked about God becoming a man without ever ceasing to be God. And in that man's body, shed his blood, went to the, or went to the cross, shed his blood, died, was buried, and rose again. And see, they looked forward to, to what we get to look back on now. So a person that admits that they're lost, they understand that there's a, a penalty for sin, it's a consequence, it's separation. Uh, deaths passed upon all men. And, and there's two deaths. The Bible talks about a second death. You know, when somebody dies, you know, in our lives, we all have loved ones that pass from time into eternity. We're separated from them. The Bible describes a second death. Those who have sinned and have, have been separated from time and enter into eternity, they're going to experience a second death. Revelation talks about it at least three times. Revelation 21.8, But the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The previous chapter, I think it's Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. There's two deaths. For those who have not trusted in Christ alone is their only hope of relationship with God and home in His presence for eternity. They'll be separated from time into eternity, but there's going to come a point in eternity when they're separated from God forever. I've said this before. I think that's the greatest terror of hell. Yes, there's wailing, there's gnashing of teeth, there's flames, there's, it's eternal destruction, but the greatest terror of hell is the fact that you'll be separated from God. Your name is going to be blotted out of the book of life. That's what Revelation describes. Not the Lamb's book of life, those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's written in the indelible ink of God. It's everlasting, it's eternal. But those that have come into this world and their names have been recorded in the book of life, their name will be blotted out of the book of life. What does that mean? 
That means there's going to come a day for the person who does not trust Christ as their alone as their only hope of relationship with God. There's going to come a time when they're separated from God for eternity and in God's mind, however that works because he's not bound by time, space, and matter. He is going, it's going to be as if they never even existed. And to me, that is the greatest terror of hell. To be in a place of wailing, gnashing of teeth, flames, pain, worms, darkness, the sensation of falling forever, and, and, to, in, in our, be, and to be able to consciously understand that nobody knows I'm here. And there is absolutely, positively no hope that I'll ever leave this place. I will never be comforted. Because my name has been blotted out of the book of life. And it is, is as if I've never existed. And I can cry out, oh God, oh God, oh God, help me. Nobody's going to hear. Tell me that's not the greatest terror of hell. What we're talking about this morning is being in the way. And the only way that you can be led of the Lord is, is to know the way. And the way is the Lord Jesus Christ. To admit that you're lost. To understand that the, the payment for sin is death. Separation from God for eternity. I like this part better. Because the Word of God says... While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, so I've had people say this to me, and perhaps you have as well. Why would a loving God, if He is a loving God, why would a loving God send people to hell? My answer to that is simply this God does not send anybody to hell, they're already on their way there. What God did send was His Son. The way truth, the eternal life and righteousness that we're missing from birth. And we can be in the way by knowing the way. I said all that to say, here's, here's how you can know the way. Believe. That's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Believe that He is who God said that He is. Believe that He is who He said that He is because He either, either is who He said that He is or He's crazy. You're going to believe what you believe based on one of three things. You're going to believe what you believe because of what somebody else told you. You're going to believe what you believe because of what you have personally experienced. Or you're going to believe what you believe because God's Word says it. There are three parts to biblical faith. And all three are necessary for biblical faith for you to believe and be saved. Number one, you need to know. Knowledge. I've given you that knowledge. I've, I've tried to help you with that knowledge. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's a payment to be made for sin. But Christ paid the payment for, for our sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He paid the debt. He didn't know. So Christ paid the debt. You have that knowledge. And all you have to do is believe. Take God at His word. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That, that He did. That His, 
that his blood is enough to satisfy the wrath of God. So you have that knowledge. That's the first part of biblical faith. The second part is called conviction. In other words, you, you say, you know what? I know God's word says it. And I know that the words of men change. And I know that experience varies from person to person. But I'm going to take God at his word. And because God said it, I believe it. That's, that's conviction. I believe it. That's, that's where it comes. But you know, that's not even, an, an, that's not even what we're talking about when it, when it comes to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you can know it and you can agree with it in your heart. But that's still not biblical faith. James said, hey, the devils believe. Don't you think that the adversary believes that there's a God? Why would he battle so hard to convince people that there's not? Don't you think that the adversary understands who the eternal Son of God is? I mean, he lived in his very presence. The devils believe, but are they going to spend eternity from God? No. Why? Because they don't have that third part of biblical faith, and that is trust. I think even the adversary himself has got himself convinced that he can change the outcome of this book, and the truth is, he can't. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And not one thing is going to change in the outcome of this book and Jesus Christ will be seated in his rightful place crowned King of Kings, Lord of Lords and, and, and every knee will bow before him someday and every tongue will confess even the most hardened atheist, the most hardened person will kneel before the Savior one day and say he's Lord of all. He is the Christ, the Messiah. Then it'll be too late for them. That's why we preach it now. That's why we that's that's that third part of biblical faith. And that biblical faith says, I don't I'm not believing this because of the words of men. I'm not believing this because of my personal experience. But I believe it as much as with a mustard with a faith as the size of a grain of mustard seed, I plant it right here. Don't understand it all. But if that book says what it says, I believe it. That's what it means to believe. That's it. No prayers, no sacraments, no baptisms, no good works. Not being born into the right family. Not, not doing the right thing. Not having somebody else do the right thing for you. But just sitting back and saying, I believe what this book says. God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. In that man's body, went to the cross, shed his blood, rose again bodily from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God where he intercedes on my behalf right at this very moment. I believe. I believe that the payment he made by his shed blood was enough to satisfy the wrath of God, and I received that gift. But as many as received him, that them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, but if you don't believe it, you won't receive it. Or the heart, it's something from the heart, not the head. Heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The confession is not what saves you. The prayer that says to God, Oh God, I believe what you said about Christ, that's not what saves you. It's the belief in the heart. It's the heart belief that says yes to God. 
want to be in the way? Do you, do you want to be able to, to face 2022 and the years to come with the same confidence? Think about this servant of Abraham, this unnamed servant of Abraham. We said, Lord, will you work it out this way? And it worked out just like he wanted, just as, as he needed. And God worked every out, out every little detail. And he couldn't believe it. He's watching this unfold. And, well, wouldn't it be fun to live 2022 that way? Just to be in the way and say, Lord, would you just lead me? And then to be able to, have you ever had that happen where you prayed for something and God answered the prayer and you just sat there and wondered, you get that almost, you want to laugh about it, you know? I can't believe God answered my prayer. <laughs> he did. I want to live that way. But to be in the way, you've got to know the way. The way is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, well, today would be a great day to do that. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't let the adversary convince you of something else. Don't, don't spend another moment lost. By faith, come to Christ. The way, truth, life. So that you can have a relationship with God right now in a home in His presence for eternity.